Well, open in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of John, chapter 5. The book of John, chapter 5. Yes, we are still studying the book of Romans, but I want to begin this time of study this morning in John, chapter 5, the familiar account of Jesus healing a paralytic at Bethesda. John, chapter 5, follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who was the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now, I told you that story to get to verse 14. Afterward... Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. There are so many curious features of this narrative. What was going on with this angel? Was it true? Did people really get healed when they stirred in the waters? That's really not the main concern of Jesus here. Jesus finds this man who he healed later in the temple, and his request for a response out of the man is what drives our understanding of the Lord's call for repentance. He says, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore. Pretty simple, isn't it? Remember in in John 8 with the woman, he said, go and sin no more. Jesus' point was clear. There should be an obvious and demonstrable response to his work in a person's life. Namely, it's the doctrine we'll be looking at in Romans 8, the doctrine of mortification, the killing of sin. He says, go and stop sinning. And then he gives us a footnote. He says, because if you keep sinning, something worse will happen to you. So in a microcosm, he says sin has devastating consequences. Now to Romans chapter 8. 
We've been looking uh, at this section, really extending from the middle of chapter 5 through uh, chapter 8 on the doctrine of sanctification, what it means to be holy before God, what it means to deal with sin in a responsible relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to repent and become more like him. And we've been looking specifically at the two verses, uh, verses 12 and 13, because it has this, this word in there which outlines and defines this doctrine we call the doctrine of mortification, killing something. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are living according to the Spirit. Here it is. You will be putting to death the deeds of the body and then you will live. We outlined and talked about that last time. We have a holy obligation. We have a, a holy repudiation of sin. We have a holy mortification. And we said we're going to take a little, little pause and look at this doctrine of mortification. So what I want you to do is kind of a, you can oil up the spines of your Bible. We're going to be turning to a lot. This is one of the primary themes of the Bible is exactly what Jesus said to this, this man. If you've received my work, then go and sin no more. Stop sinning. Thanatao is the Greek word here in, in uh, Romans 8. It's, it's from the Greek base thanatos, death. Put to death, kill the deeds of the body. The body here is the instrument through which the, uh, the flesh operates. It's the, the doctrine we call mortification. Paul talks about this in so many places. We could spend the rest of the morning just reading verses. Romans 6, 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Colossians 3, 5, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Galatians 5, 4, 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Now, I want to I confess something to you before we start into a list that we're going to look at. Um, uh, there's a lot being said today in, in academic circles about plagiarism. And plagiarism is when you take someone else's thoughts, words, ideas, and make them your own. So in order not to be a plagiarist, a plagiarizer, what I want to tell you is I am absolutely stealing, reorienting, and, and uh, I have absconded with so much from John Owen, one of my favorite Puritan writers these aren't word for word what I got from him. But so much of this has been influenced by his, his book on sin and temptation, which I cannot recommend highly enough. That I've, I, It's hard for me to figure out where have his thoughts stopped and my thoughts begun. So I want to confess right now, I am spiritually plagiarizing. And uh, I think Dr. Owen, who is in glory right now, would not mind us stealing some of his, his thoughts. He says this, quote, to mortify means to take away all the strength and vigor and power of sin so that it cannot act on its own or exert itself in the life of a believer. Listen to that. To take away all the strength and power and vigor of sin so that it cannot act on its own. In other words, to fight those sinful desires and impulses and urges in our hearts. It's external sin, patterns of behavior, 
but it's also internal motives and desires. Mortification is slaying the deeds of the body and the flesh. It's becoming more like Jesus. It's the process of stopping sinning and starting to live righteously. That's mortification. It's another way of describing the work of sanctification to become holy. Now, Owen goes on, it's, it, there's several iterations of this book, by the way. There's a little Puritan paperback that's, that's been redone in modern English that is, it's called The Mortification of Sin uh, by Banner of Truth. You can look at that. It's really, really helpful. Um, uh, there, there's another larger work on sin and temptation that you can look at as well that's been updated in, in modern English um, by Taylor and Capic. Owen goes on to say, If you're not serious about mortification, you're not serious about Jesus. Pretty serious uh, accusation. If you're not serious about killing sin, you cannot be serious about Jesus. He says, quote, Mortification involves the habitual weakening of sin and constant fighting against it with measures of success. What you have to do is, before we begin, is just to ask, are you serious about fighting sin? Are you serious about dealing with sin in your life? Not, not the sin that might be there, but the sin that is there. We'll see in a few minutes. Do you, do you know your besetting sins? Probably not one, but multiple. Do you know the sins that you constantly struggle with over and over? Not, not week by week, not day by day, but hour by hour. So what I want to do this morning in just kind of a systematic fashion is give you a dozen ways to start mortifying sin. I'm going to give you 12, and I can give you hundreds. This is not the end of the list on how to start mortifying sin. This is the beginning of the process. Now, let me just tell you from the very beginning that you're not going to be able to grab all of this and apply all of this today. What I would suggest is maybe taking these scriptures down, writing this list down, and this is a, this is a jump start. If you've got some technology for, question, for Christmas, they typically have the big manual, and then they got a little bitty quick start guide. This is the quick start guide. This is the way to start the process of mortification. And truthfully, you're probably only gonna be able to grab one or two or three of these and really work on them in the moment because it's so overwhelming, which is why it's a lifelong process and it's a day-by-day process is something we have to be serious about. So let's get serious about mortifying sin. Number one, have a plan. I'm gonna give you a dozen ways to get started. Number one, have a plan. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. I can't wait to get there. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those verses you should probably have memorized, underlined, highlighted. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no strategon. Provision, plan, make no plan for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, you're always going to have a plan. It's a plan to pursue righteousness or it's the innate, unidentifiable default in your heart to have a plan to pursue sin. Mortifying sin is not passive. It's active and aggressive. It involves deliberate focus and attention. It involves having a plan. If I were to ask you this morning, kind of pull you off in the back corner of the church and say, what is your plan today? What is your strategy today for dealing with your sins that are gonna come up out of the blue and the sins that you know beset your soul and trap you and trip you day in and day out? What's your plan? 
Paul gives us a, a very keen insight here. He says it involves putting on Jesus. Putting on Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plan or provision for the flesh in regard to his lust. How do you put on the Lord Jesus? What did Jesus say to what the primary focus of uh, our Lord's table celebration is? And whenever you do this, do this to what? Remember me. The implication there is that one of the greatest slippages of the traction in our spiritual walk is forgetting Jesus. Defaulting our, our worldview and our, our Christianity into behavior modification, doing better, trying harder. He, he's no, no, remembering Jesus. If Jesus has risen from the dead, everything, everything, everything has to change. He is alive. He is, he's uh, resurrected from the grave. He's sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. He is alive with us, John 14 says. He's abiding with us. He's not left us as orphans. Put him on, which means to be aware of his presence. Be aware of his work. Be aware of his life. Be aware of Jesus. If you separate mortification and sanctification from the Lord Jesus Christ, you will naturally become a legalist. You'll become critical. You'll become judgmental because you're not acting on your best friend, your big brother, your Lord and Savior who is with you. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is make no provision or plans to sin. This involves that positive side of putting on the Lord Jesus, the negative side of putting something off, taking something off. Colossians 3 talks about putting on and putting off. This is the same idea. All of us know what it's like to make a strategy to sin, don't we? Oh, it can be as simple as, as um, letting your, your thumb linger too long on the television set when something that's not honoring to God comes on. It can be planning out a conversation that you're gonna have with someone where you're gonna let them have it. You're gonna let them know what you think. All of us, if, with, with any amount of thought, know what it's like to make a strategy for sin. Instead, we should have a strategy for mortification, for sanctification, for becoming holy. You will, listen, by one o'clock today, let's just say we're all, we all leave around noon. Some of you will leave earlier. By one o'clock today, you will have presented to your soul the opportunity to sin in thought or in deed, in word or in action. What is your plan now for when that temptation comes in order to respond in a way that kills that sin and does what's righteous? What is your plan? And if you say, well, I don't know, then let's keep going. Number two, identify sin internally and externally. Over in James chapter four, now, this is, not, this is just one application, but what James does is very insightful for how he thinks through sin. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He's not content to say, I know there's quarrels, I know there's conflicts, I know I have relational issues. That's not enough for him. He says, what is the source? Where does this come from? It's not enough for James just to say, I'm going to stop arguing. He wants to know, why am I arguing? Why is there conflict? Then he says, is not the source your pleasures, your desires, which wage war in your members? You lust 
which is just a, a word for strong desire. You strongly desire and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What James is doing is saying, trace the expression of your sin back to what's going on in your heart. He then says, verse three, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, some of us even pray for sanctification selfishly. Go back to your motives. James is saying, trace the external to the internal. What's the idolatry of the heart? What's going on on the inside? What do you really want that you think this sin is going to give you? That's what he's asking. Stephen Charnock says, all sin is found in secret atheism. Every sin is a kind of cursing God in the heart and aim at the destruction of the being of God. Not actually, but virtually. A man in Every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory at the end of his actions. Remember Hebrews 12, 1, it says, lay aside those sins that so easily beset us or entangle us. He says, literally, lay aside the sin. It's a specific sin. He says, there is a sin, multiple sins, I'm sure, for all of us, but there's a sin that you're particularly tripped up by. It's different for different people. It could be gossip. It could be sexual lust. It could be envy, jealousy. It could be anger. It could be laziness, materialism, arrogance, pride. Here's the point. Do you know what your besetting sin is? If you don't know and you're married, ask your spouse. They will help you identify that sin. What is your besetting sin? What sin did you struggle with yesterday that you're gonna have to today? Last week that you had to today? Last year that you have to today? What is that that so easily trips you? If you don't know it, I can assure you the devil does. Identify sin internally and externally. Do what James does. He, he wasn't content just to look at the quarrel he wanted to go to the source. Where did that come from? He very simply said, it's my desires. I, I wanted something I couldn't get. What do you want that you, you'll sin in order to get? Number three, improve your understanding and knowledge of God's holiness. Improve your understanding and knowledge of God's holiness. This should be obvious to all of us here at Mission Road. We have heard it for decades Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, in the year of King Isaiah's death, Isaiah sees the Lord. He's sitting on the throne. His, his uh, glory fills the temple. He hears holy, holy, holy uh, from the, the angels that are flying around God. And then he says, woe is me for I am ruined. In other words, the most righteous man in Israel, the man who is the prophet of God, the man who is the preacher to the Jews, this man who would have been understood by everyone as the most holy saw himself as unholy Specifically in how he talked, I'm a man of unclean what? Lips. When he saw the holiness of God. If you're not sensitive to your sin, it's always because you're not sensitive to God's holiness. It's really simple. Where there's no understanding and appreciation of God's righteous holiness, there will be no real motivation to mortify sin. 
I mean, that's one point we could spend the rest of the year talking about. How do we pursue understanding and applying the holiness of God? Number four. Confess sin to God as a personal offense. Confess sin to God as a personal offense. Remember David when he sinned with and against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband, by having him murdered. He sinned against Joab by giving him wrongful spiritual leadership, counsel, and advice. He sinned to Nathan by keeping something back and hiding from him. He sinned against all the people who were going back and forth to grab Bathsheba, bring her back so that he could commit this adulterous act. He committed so many sins against so many people. And yet, when he comes to to see his sin before the Lord, remember what he says in Psalm 51, verse 4? Against you, Lord, against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, is he saying I didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah or Joab? Is he, that's not what he's saying. He's saying all of those sins are the dominoes after the first sin, which is I sinned against you. That's where he started. My sin, Lord, was a personal offense toward you, my God. Yes, sin can involve others, but it's primarily an offense against a holy God who created us. Do you confess your sins to God as an offense against him? Let's say you sin against someone. When you confess that to the Lord, is it, you know, I was, I was mean to my brother, I was unkind to my neighbor, I was this at work or that with my wife or husband, or do you say, Lord, I have sinned against you by doing this and also someone you've created? It's personal. Sin is personal with God, and God takes it very personally. We're moving fast. Number five. Meditate on God's word. Don't just read. Meditate on God's word. Turn to Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. This is a passage that most of us know, but I want to tell you how I I memorized it when I was uh, in high school uh, in a a youth group setting with with a discipler who cared much for my heart and my soul. Very well intended, very well meaning, but there was something missing Here's how I memorized this passage. Psalm 119, verse nine. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin, there's that personal offense again, against you. The problem is that skips verse 10, which is the glue for this whole repentance in God's word. Look at verse 10. With all my heart, I have sought righteousness, Sinlessness, doing better. What does he say? With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Remember to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember to focus on Christ. Here David says, or Daniel, whoever wrote Psalm 119, I I, I need to seek you. Because of that, now you go back to 9 and 11. How do you keep your way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Let me frighten you to your core, okay? You and I will be held accountable for every single word in this book. 
wouldn't it make sense that we know what we're accountable to? You say, is this reading your, is this the read your Bible sermon? You caught me. I am. You, you got it. You're right. Start a new year next week. What is it, on uh, Thursday? Is that the first? Uh, this is the time of year everyone talks about their Bible reading plans. I don't care if you start on January or in September or in July. What is your Bible reading plan? Let me tell you a very um, familiar and uh, a little bit terrifying scenario that I've heard, seen, played over and over and over. It's even shown up in my life, okay? This is what it looks like. I'm gonna do this epic attempt at reading God's word this year beginning on January 1. Maybe three years beginning on January 1. Anyway, you got this big plan on January 1 and you do great. You, you start ahead. You start on the 28th so that you can get ahead. And then January 1 comes, you're awesome because you're off watching football, doing whatever. You get your Bible reading done. Second, great. Third, fourth, fifth. You come back to work and you skip a day. Then the next day you catch up. Then you skip three days. And then the next day you try to get caught up for one day and then you get more behind and more behind and more behind and then this is what the devil whispers in your ear you're so behind you might as well give up can anyone bring me their copy of scripture your copy of God's word can anyone bring me your copy and show me where it says thou shalt read God's word in one year would you just, just keep reading? I think if you're, if you're the person who checks the boxes and that's helpful, praise God, check the boxes. But if checking the boxes and when you don't check the box discourages you from reading God's word, throw the boxes away. Read, you will not, I think the devil is so clever is to get us behind then we think we just might as well give up. Just not true. Read God's word. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. How can you keep it according to his word? You have to read it. Know what it says. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's why we treasure it in the heart. Number six. Pray with awareness. By the way, number five, we could... We could study that the rest of the year too, couldn't we? This is overwhelming. Number six, pray with awareness. Two passages I want to to show you just back to back. Jesus comes to his disciples two different times. When he arrived at that place, Luke 22, 40, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Hmm. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Does that remind you of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Do you think Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, want to provide assistance for mortification? Absolutely. Do we ever ask him for that assistance? What are we doing? Verse 26, excuse me, verse 7. Matthew 26, 41 says, keep watching and praying that you may enter, not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watching and praying. In other words, we're praying with awareness. 
We're not praying these rope prayers just before dinner, thanking God for food. I think we should thank God for food. He's very, very uh, honored when we thank him for the food that we've eaten. I had a man tell me, when you pray long over your meal, that's proof you're not praying at any other time. Don't, you don't need to pray for all the missionaries at your meal, but you should pray for all the missionaries. Are we praying with awareness? Did you, have you, will you tomorrow pray when you get up and, and the, the enemy of your soul is sitting on your chest with his finger in your face? Will you start your day by saying, Lord, as with every other day in my life, I have begun in the flesh. Please assist your servant to do your will, to read your word, before you get out of bed, will you pray with awareness? Are you going to pray with awareness? Let me encourage you to do something that a man taught me years ago that was a little stunning. He said, quit saying amen. It kind of startled me. What do you mean quit saying amen? Amen just means so be it. Say that at the beginning of your prayer. And then don't say amen at the, prayer, at the end of your prayer so that you're not finished. It was kind of a good uh, reminder for me just to, uh, to, to finish a phrase with God and then to think about when am I going to pick up the next phrase. He wasn't saying don't say amen. I realize that's a biblical reality and truth. What he was saying is don't stop praying. Pray with awareness. Pray with watchfulness. That is an entire series in and of itself. Number seven. Be ready to be extreme in the fight. Be ready to be extreme in the fight. We've looked at this over the last few weeks. You know Matthew 5, Jesus says, if your eye makes you sin, pluck it out, throw it from you. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off, throw it far from you. Better to enter without one of your body parts into, into heaven than to enter into hell without dealing with sin so radically. Are you willing to be extreme in the fight? You know that besetting sin? How extreme do you want to be? You struggle with the television, you're ready to throw it away? Struggle with the internet, you're ready to unplug? Struggle with a relationship, you're ready to sit down with someone and confess sin? Struggle with materialism, you're ready to increase your giving to the Lord? What are you, let me ask it this way, what are you not willing to do to be serious about your sin? Jesus said, you go to extreme measures. The only reason that we would go to extreme measures is back to the, what we've seen earlier. We understand the holiness of God and we understand the blackness of our sin against the white black uh, backdrop of God's grace and holiness. Are you, am I willing to be extreme about our sin? You know what it might be? It might be going to bed earlier to get up earlier to spend time with God's word. It could be a thousand things, but are you willing to be extreme? Every, every single, every single, without question, every single advancement in holiness is saying no to something. Every yes is a no to something else, and every no is a yes to something else. What are you willing to say yes and no to to mortify sin? I've, t I've told you this before. John Owen says, labor to know your own frame and temper, what spirit you are of, 
what associates in your heart Satan has. What associates does Satan have in your heart? Are you willing to fight those associates? This is for another passage, but you know there's only three, three sins or a combination. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. 1 John 2, 16 says, 14 to 16 says, that's all that's in the world. Those are the only arrows Satan has in his quiver or a combination thereof. What associates does Satan have in our hearts related to these lapses in sanctification? Number eight, fix your eyes on Jesus. We've already seen this in Romans 13, but specifically, fix your eyes on Jesus. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God and It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Listen to this. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself, even as he is pure. Are your eyes fixed on Christ? Back to Hebrews 12, 1 to 4. Fixing our eyes on Christ. Jesus, the author and perfecter, the captain of our faith. Fix your eyes on Christ. The gospel matters morning, noon, and night, not just at Easter or communion. Fix your eyes on Jesus. How long can your soul go without a meditation on the preciousness of Christ? We should be so thirsty, so hungry for visions of him. And I don't mean some mystical vision. I mean biblical understandings of him, mental pictures of of a gracious dying savior, one who is now alive and sits by the throne of heaven on the right hand of God to pray for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Again, we could study that for a long time. Number nine. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I'm only going to mention this because this will be the first um, passage we'll come back to in Romans when we finish our stewardship month. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. How do you follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? We have that divine resource. He lives with us. He abides with us. The challenge becomes listening to and obeying him. And I'm not breaking into charismania here, but I want to tell you, it's not very difficult to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit, is it? You're standing in, in uh, the gas station or quick trip or wherever, and, and you sense, you know what, I think I should probably witness to someone. That's not the devil. That's not your flesh. You're starting to watch something on television that you know you shouldn't. That, that little, you know you shouldn't, that's not the devil, and that's not your flesh. I am convinced that the Holy Spirit is leading us all the time by an informed conscience. We'll see this more when we get to, to this text. But I think the leading of the Holy Spirit is not, not as difficult as people put it out to be. What is he leading me to do? Watch this. Obey. Be righteous. 
Your conscience is informing you all the time and a believer's conscience has this floodlight always on it saying, you know what would honor God and you know what wouldn't. It's not that difficult to be led by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what your heart is telling you is right and wrong, informed biblically, and that is the Holy Spirit informing and leading you. It's always to obey the word of God and honor the holiness of God. Number 10, be confident your temptation is never too strong, never too hard, and never too much. You know what this is like, right? Oh, I can't say no. This is so hard. This is, there's no way I can say no to this temptation. I have to say yes to it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Paul says, you haven't experienced anything that no one else hasn't experienced also. This is not unique to you. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of, what is it? Escape, that you will be able to endure it. My my struggle is unique. No, it's not. My situation is worse. No, it's not. My trials are way too high. No, they are not. My struggle is unlike anyone else. No, it's not. I can't help but sin because the temptation is too strong. No, it's not. There is always an escape. There is always an off-ramp. There is always an exit the question is, are we looking for the escape or are we looking for the enjoyment of the sin? And it's not always the enjoyment of a sin that you might think. Sometimes worry is, is a sin and there's an escape from that. There are ways to trust God and to bear your burdens before others and to pray and yet we like to worry. What do you, when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, Does anyone's Bible have a footnote under that nothing where it says except? Be anxious for nothing except what's going on in your life. No, 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 no. You cannot say this is too much. Here's what I found out about temptation in my own life. Is there's typically not one way of escape. There's not one off ramp. There's not one exit. You know, sometimes when you're on the freeway, you miss an exit, and it's miles before you find the next one. I remember in, in, uh, uh, traveling in, in West Texas on I-40 one time, and it says, next exit, 170 miles. It's not encouraging. And there was nothing in that. It's kind of like between here and Denver, but that's another story. The issue is there are exit ramps for sin every second in your thinking. Every second. It's not like, well, I missed the exit, so I might as well go ahead and sin now. That's not what he's saying. There's always a way of escape. Are we looking for how to get out of that or how to enjoy that? Number 11, stay away from sin. Stay away from sin. Beloved, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. 
1 Corinthians 6, 18, how, how clear is this? Flee immorality. Most of us ask the question, how close can I get to sin and be okay? How much can I enjoy and not cross the line? It's asked all the time when I'm dealing with uh, couples, you know, how far can we go physically, which is looking at sin and saying, how close can I get to sin? The right question is what? How holy can I be? How far away can I stay from sin? Flee immorality. It's a question we should be posing all the time. How far can I stay away from sin, not how close can I get? And number 12. Confess your sins to other believers. You say, whoa, now you're, now you're starting to meddle. This is, a, this is crossing the line. Confess your sins to one another. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. And then he says this, bear one another's burdens. What burden is that? In the context here, it's each one's temptations. Here's my fear for Mission Road Bible Church is that we're such sweet people. We're such nice people. We have such great acquaintance relationships when they stand out in the atrium and the foyer and we talk and it's, it's just a nice time, but we, we don't really know each other to the extent where we can bear one another's burdens. That's why we have care groups. That's why we have small groups. That's why we get together Do you know the sins of the people around you so that you can help them and pray for them and cover them? Or are we creating an environment where we just come and like each other and go home? It's not optional. Who knows your struggles? Who's bearing your burdens? Who prays specifically for you? Who prays for your mortification? Who's holding you accountable? And whose burden are you bearing? On our side, whose burden is safe with us to be prayed for, to be confidential, to be held in a, in a precious reality between us and God for help? When you go to the bakery, a dozen is never 12, is it? How many is it? 13. So let me give you 13. It's not on there. It's a trick. Number 13, enjoy the forgiveness and grace of the gospel. Enjoy the grace and forgiveness of the gospel. 1 John 1, 8, 9, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us if we confess our sins. Oh, this is so good. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you blow it on those first 12, and you will, let me give you some good news. You can't out God's grace. You cannot sin to the point where God says, that was it, you're done. Enjoy the grace and forgiveness of the gospel. I think so often the enemy of our soul whispers again in our ear and says, that's too much, that's too far, you've, you've drifted too, too far away from God, you cannot restore that relationship with him, so you might as well just stay in your sin. 
It's kind of the old illustration that if, you're, if, you're, if you go to someone's pool party and you're not dressed uh, to go swimming and someone pushes you in the pool, hopefully not with your cell phone in your pocket, that's another story. Someone pushes you in the pool and you say, well, I'm wet, I might as well go ahead and swim. Some of us think about sin like that. Well, I've blown it, so I might as well stay here. No, no, no. Enjoy forgiveness and pursue Repentance. So that's, that's like 12 out of hundreds of admonitions to be about mortification. Now, I understand. I look at these, these lists of, this list of 12 and I say, wow, wow, where, where do you stop? Where do you start? Just take one or two. Begin somewhere. Begin somewhere. Look at this list and say, where can I begin today? John Owen Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then you know it well. Be killing sin or sin will be what? Killing you. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were known by people who walk in this this building as a people committed to God and each other to be killing sin in our own hearts. How would God be glorified like that? How holy would we be? How much enjoyment would we we be receiving from the gift of God's forgiveness and the grace of the gospel? I'd like to be more serious this next year about the mortification of sin in my own flesh. And you have an invitation from not Rick, your pastor, but Rick, your brother. You have an invitation into my life Tap on my shoulder. Say, hey, that, that doesn't sound, I, I don't know what's in your heart, but it sure doesn't sound like what's in heaven's heart. Just, let's offer an invitation to one another to bear one another's burdens and attack. This is just, a, this is just 13. There are, where do you stop in creating a list for how to mortify sin? can't mortify sin if you're not a Christian. You can only just be a moralist. Number 13 is important because you can't, you can't do anything to earn God's forgiveness and favor. He has granted it at the cross. And if that's something you're interested in talking about, our prayer room is going to be open in just a minute and we'll be able to pray with you, talk with you, invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ who is alive and explain to you how you can be saved from sin, Satan, and yourself, and even God himself. Father, give us traction on these 12 so fast, way too fast. We should spend weeks and weeks on each one of these. Overwhelm us and also give us hope and encouragement where we can start in just a few areas to improve our walk and our efforts to mortify sin in our flesh. Thank you for this loving body of Christ in which you've placed me and my family. Cause us to care for one another's souls and to be about the business of mortification. We want to glorify you in this effort, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.